Hello, listeners. Jabir here, and this is Raw Talk Podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. You've made it to episode 35, and I'm super thrilled to present you today's guest, Dr. Shelley Wall. Dr. Wall is a certified medical illustrator and assistant professor in the University of Toronto's Biomedical Communications Graduate Program, or BMC. This is our second time featuring BMC faculty on the show, episode 8 with Dr. Jody Jenkinson, in case you're wondering, and it only gets better. On this episode, our conversation starts off by going through a drawing exercise together. Then we get into Dr. Wall's journey from humanities to visual communication in medicine. Finally, we talk about her latest work in comics and graphic medicine, which has become one of her primary areas of teaching, research, and creation. But before we dive in, I'd like to give a special shout out to Carla DeMarco and Tim Lane from View to the U, a podcast that features the exceptional researchers at the University of Toronto Mississauga campus, like Dr. Wall and Dr. Jody Jenkinson. Y'all been great supporters of our show, and we just want to let you know that we love what you're doing as well. So to our listeners and everyone else out there, be sure to check them out on SoundCloud. Again, that's View to the U, the letter U, and you won't regret it. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Wall. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Broad Talk. I'm joined today by Dr. Shelley Wall. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Wall. Thank you, Javier. It's a great pleasure to be here. Just to set the mood for our listeners, before uh, we started, I asked uh, Dr. Wall, I was actually inspired by watching a lecture by one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. M.K. Serwick. M.K. Serwick, that's it. And the title was A Thousand Pictures Tell a Thousand Words or something like that around those lines. And she gave an exercise to the class which was draw something that you're currently working on, and in particular, the challenge associated with what you're doing. Dr. Wall and I did this exercise, and I thought it would be a great way to warm up the conversation to describe what we drew. I guess I'll go first. I mean, as a recent graduate, um, I'm in this transition, what's next stage, and I'm having a lot of conversations with different type of people. You know, my family, mom and dad are always like, when are you going to come home? You know, come visit us. And then I got my brothers and my sisters all for fun. They'll say, well, when are you going to get a job? Now you're done school. When are you going to get a job? And then my closest friends, you know, very supportive. Everyone's supportive. Go for something big. You can do it. Uh, So this is what I drew. Um, The challenge for me, of course, is this transition Mm -hmm. and figuring out what is next for me. Can you tell us what you drew? Well, this is me contemplating this giant blank page, which is the sort of potential space for my new project that I'm working on. And underneath it is a volume of archival material and documents and scholarship that I have to somehow assimilate (laughs) and translate into work that is supposed to be on that page. So it's sort of, it's the terror of the blank page. When you were drawing this, what were you thinking about? I think the kind of exercise that MK proposes, one of the One of the beauties of getting people to express a thought or a feeling in drawing, and particularly people who don't think of themselves as visual thinkers. Mm -hmm. Their first impulse when they want to express something is not to make a drawing. And I think, I mean, when I was starting to do this, rather than kind of how would I articulate in words what my challenge is, 
I thought, how does this challenge feel? Mm. <laughs> so it feels like this great big thing looming up above me. You know, there's a somatic aspect <laughs> to, to it. It's, it's you know, you. it wasn't just this kind of intellectual articulation of how I feel. But yeah, it's this great big thing that is up there that is waiting for me to make my mark on it. Well, I'm glad that we did that then. So yeah, maybe this is a breakthrough for me. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks to you. I think that's a good segue. Well, thanks for warming up this conversation with me that like that for someone, you know, like yourself, who's explored so many different things in so many different formats when you're, you're meeting someone for the first time and they ask you what you do and we'll get to, you know, what you do, what do you say to them? I generally say I teach in the biomedical communications program at U of T, which doesn't necessarily tell them what I do. Biomedical communications, I find often people need to have that glossed and a kind of shorthand is to say a medical illustration. Often when you say medical illustration, people would say, oh, I see. Um, another thing I might say is I teach people about visual communication in science and medicine. So that's actually a kind of a broader definition. That sounds really nice yeah, too. Yeah, because that encompasses, you know, we also teach... Uh, it's not just teaching people how to make images, but it's teaching them how to understand images, how to think about how images work, the kind of theoretical aspects of what we do, as well as just the applied skills. Mm-hmm. Hey everyone, Swapna and Kat here. This episode explores biomedical communication, and that got us wondering about where it all began. We set out to learn more about the history and evolution of medical illustration to what we know today as biomedical communication. We visited the Fisher Rare Book Library right here at the University of Toronto to find out more. And we're joined by Alexandra Carter, the librarian for the history of science and medicine here. It's wonderful to have you join us, Alexandra. Welcome to Raw Talk. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about what medical illustration is and how we can define it? Medical illustration is any sort of illustration that was used to teach new theories of medicine to another person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say that's the most broad way to think about it. If we're thinking back to pre-print times that mostly entailed just manuscript drawings. Mm-hmm. Anything that could not be conveyed through text that needed demonstration, the closest thing to an actual demonstration would be an illustration. Mm-hmm. So you touch a little bit on the importance of medical illustration and its role in teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if maybe you could speak more about the role uh, medical illustration has played and maybe continues to play in both the teaching and the practice of medicine. Right. So in really early study of anatomy, there were constraints placed on things like dissections. Uh, That was usually constraints from uh, religious constraints or cultural norms that frowned upon um, the study of the body. And so instead of teaching dissection through a live dissection, you had to teach about the human body through uh, illustrations. There's a tradition which is commonly referred to as the pre-Vesalian approach to teaching anatomy, which involved the lecturer actually not touching the body at all. The lecturer would sit up on a pedestal, literally a pedestal, (laughs) uh, reading from a certain text about describing the different parts of the body. And the work of actual dissection was done by a surgeon or a barber, which at the time they were considered completely separate from physicians. Mm -hmm. Uh, So illustrations played a really important part because it was not uh, the actual dissection of bodies was not considered part of real medicine. Mm -hmm. 
Medical illustration has a really interesting history. How has it changed over time? Could you briefly take us through the history of medical illustration, the various artistic and medical influences that have shaped the field into what it is today? Yeah, so the history of medical illustration really goes back to the beginning of both medicine and illustration, going way back to the ancients. Um, not much is known about the study of anatomy in the ancient world, but we do know that there was a medical school in Alexandria. And some of the very earliest images that you could maybe call medical illustrations were the scene on decorative pottery from ancient Egypt, where there are depictions of battle scenes and injured men, and they're receiving medical treatment for their injuries. The more systematic anatomical practice was established in the second century by a really famous physician, Galen, and his ideas went on to influence his anatomical study for the next several hundred years. And while his contributions were very important, many of them were really off, they were inaccurate, <laughs> uh, because it was later determined, a few years later, he had never actually dissected a human body. He relied on the bodies of pigs and apes and extrapolated from this to the human body. And his only other experience with anatomy was when he was working as the physician for the Roman Colosseum mm. and fixing injured gladiators. So he never did a comprehensive dissection of a human body, and yet his ideas trickled down for, like I said, several hundred years. Mm -hmm. And after Galen, many of his texts and texts of his contemporaries made their way to the Arab world, where they were translated and studied there. But due to the really strict prescriptions against dissection of human bodies under Islamic law, didn't really advance further there, and same with the Christian church being opposed to dissection. So it wasn't until the 14th century that civil and ecclesiastical laws constraining dissection were relaxed, mm -hmm. and the study was able to uh, flourish a little more. So jumping to the 15th and 16th centuries with the invention of the printing press, there was an explosion in the production of medical texts. A few of these contained illustrations. Progress in anatomical illustration through the Renaissance was quite slow. And this is because of two main factors. One was the difficulty still of obtaining cadavers and the difficulty of finding skilled artists to both design and carve the woodblocks, which was the primary method of producing illustrations. The next big leap was um, Leonardo da Vinci's work. His main work was on the human figure, produced in 1493. His illustrations were groundbreaking because he was able to borrow techniques from architecture and engineering, such as um, visualizing things in terms of cross-section and exploded uh, drawings of mechanical parts. Mm -hmm. And he could apply these perspectives to the human body. So he created illustrations that showed the human body as three-dimensional for the first time, uh, and it was quite revolutionary. So we don't have any Leonardo da Vinci papers at the Fisher Library, but they're said to have been 7,000 sheets of drawings of his on anatomy, mm -hmm. but only 200 survive now, and they're across in institutions in mm -hmm. Italy. So quite an important figure, but not much is, is left of his work. It is unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like throughout the history, sorry, a lot of the time the actual drawings, the, the production of the actual drawings were done by artists, but what the medical side of it was done by physicians and then later surgeons. Um, mm -hmm. So is that something that 
generally continued or is there a point when that merged? Because today we see that that's something that, you know, someone with a science background and artistic ability, the two have kind of conflated and Mm -hmm. they can do both um, at the same time. Yeah, no, in all of these earlier cases, the projects were a product of two or three people. So Mm -hmm. you would have the author who was the doctor in most cases. You would have an artist who would design Mm -hmm. uh, the drawings on paper and then you would also have a craftsman, so the engraver Mm -hmm. who did the engraving of the work. And they might not have any medical background whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Their primary work might be doing herbals or flowers or, you yeah. know, ecclesiastical drawings. Um, and they're ju- they were commissioned to come in and do these works. Mm-hmm. Max Burdell had one of the first medical illustration schools in North America. And I'm wondering if that was the point at which this merging occurred in these schools that were dedicated to medical illustration? Yeah, I think definitely when it became an actual department, uh, what is it called, art as applied to medicine, (laughs) that would be the official merging of it. I can't think of an example where before that the doctor would be doing their own illustrations. Mm -hmm. So your role at the Fisher Book Library is the librarian for the history of science and medicine and that means that you curate a specific collection the hannah collection Mm -hmm. can you tell us what the hannah collection is and what makes it unique yeah so the hannah collection is one of our largest collections at the fisher library and it's unique because it's extremely comprehensive and that's because it's really a collection of collections Mm -hmm. it's not just one person it's conglomeration of several but the foundational collection was donated to us by dr jason hannah who was associated with Associated Medical Services. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was an early charity in Ontario putting together one of the first models for a prepaid medical care plan. And when Universal Healthcare came about, the charity diverted its resources to supporting the study of the history of medicine. Mm -hmm. So they set up a few endowed professorships in history of medicine, and they also arranged for the purchase of medical books from the Medical Society of London. And those books made their way to us in uh, 1973 when this building that we're currently in opened. Mm -hmm. And that included many foundational medical texts, including Hippocrates and Galen and Vesalius and several others. And that sort of established the collection for the beginning. We added to that the collection from Dr. Thomas Lambo, who was a Nigerian doctor and deputy director of the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. His collection filled in several missing areas for 19th and 20th century medicine, including psychiatry and the first book to mention the stethoscope. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have the Dr. Martin Rucker collection of obstetrics and gynecology. So that's one of our strengths in the history of medicine collection, where we have two of the first books ever published on obstetrics. So the thing I think it really, though, that makes the collection unique is that all of the collections that make up the Hannah collection were collected by medical professionals. They were all doctors who, who knew their subjects really, really well. They knew what to collect. They, they had a passion for it and an expertise that a librarian can't always have mm-hmm. <laughs> without having that practical experience. And we really rely on this kind of expertise of our donors. And we're extremely grateful for donors like Jason Hanna for establishing these collections because otherwise we wouldn't have that comprehensiveness that we mm-hmm. have now. Right. Sounds like a truly illustrious collection. (laughs) Um, I remember recently you had a public anatomia exhibit 
and you often have exhibits here at the Fisher Rare Book Library, and that leads to a question of what is the importance of engaging the public and non-experts with historical and medical illustrations? That's a really good question. I think there's a lot of reasons outside of just the compelling nature of these illustrations that, to me, not just beyond science, what they're really showing is how people were reconciling with the body and death and disease and injury at the time. I mean, they're often very gruesome images, but they're affecting, and, and people have a very strong response to that. But more importantly, I think there is this sort of perception that medical illustration, because medicine is a science, is always very accurate and objective, and in, mm-hmm. it's the truth. But there's a lot of different factors going on to produce that image. And if you're looking back at the history of medical illustration, it's even more clear how constrained artists were in creating these images and how they were competing. Um, You had the religious groups that didn't want to see these illustrations at all versus Mm -hmm. medicine that was trying to build itself into a professional category. So when you're looking at these older illustrations, I think it reminds us that there's always mediating factors that influence the production mm-hmm. of images, and to question that, as opposed to taking you know, an image as completely accurate and normal, there's, there's just no way that an image could capture everything at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to keep that in mind and bring that to the public is important. Thank you for exploring more about the history of science and medicine um, and illustration with us. That was really enlightening, and we uh, really appreciate you and your time. We chatted about this before we started recording, and I just find it fascinating to be able to speak to someone who has a graduate education in the humanities, Mm. right? Because oftentimes, many of my colleagues or who I see on a regular basis were in the biomedical field, as well as my supervisors and so on. So what I'm curious about is to hear your thoughts on you know, when you look back on your graduate education, because you have a PhD in romantic literature. Did I get that right? Yeah. (laughs) What sticks out to you? I guess what strikes me now looking back is how actually coherent (laughs) my entire educational trajectory has been, how everything that I've studied plays a role in what I do now, which I would not have expected when I left the world of English literature I didn't realize that all of that training and all of that formation would continue to play a role, even when I moved into teaching in essentially in in a science field. Mm -hmm. Well, if you could put yourself in your shoes right now, in your last years, you're just about to finish and graduate. What were you thinking about then? When I finished my PhD in English, what I knew was that I didn't want to look for a job as an English professor. I guess that's, I can say that. But I still, I loved everything else about studying literature. You know, I love reading it. I love thinking about it. I love talking to people about it. And I do love teaching. Mm -hmm. It was just, um, it had to do with various other factors that, you know, I didn't want to enter that particular job market. And there was a part of me that had always wanted to study visual art. I had always drawn. I had never formally studied it. And I really felt like that was something I had to do. I can't say I had a long-term plan. I just knew that there was one particular thing I didn't feel like I wanted to do at that point, which was go into academia in that field. And there was one thing that I really did want to do, which was to take a leap into studying visual art. Yeah, and get a formal education. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you did. Yes. Four-year diploma in studio art. Yeah. So Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was odd going from a PhD into college. (laughs) 
Well, now they're called um, OCAD University. Yes, yes. I was there when it was Ontario College of Art and Design, and it was a college. Okay. I think it was not too long after I left that they became a degree-granting institution. Uh, but the last thing I guess I wanted to ask about, you know, the, your early intellectual development, because we often talk about the technical skills and the knowledge we've gained in our education, especially when it comes to biomedical sciences, but not so much the perspectives that we've got at, mm-hmm. you know, of these degrees. So... I was hoping you can kind of comment on your experiences and your degrees in the humanities, what perspectives they've given you that you've kind of used or have informed your decisions or what you've been working on today that we'll get to. I mean, that's a really big question. Things that I work with right now that I would attribute directly to all the time I spent reading and thinking about literature and reading literary theory and criticism is the power of narrative and um, different ways of analyzing and appreciating narrative structure. Because a lot of biomedical visual communication, it's still visual storytelling. And so a lot of that appreciation of the power of story and how you build an argument, um, which I realize is slightly different from narrative, but a lot of that plays a really important role in what I do today. There's a certain kind of critical thinking that plays a role in literary analysis that I find really, really useful in what I do now and in helping think through um, how to conceptualize a problem, for example, or how to break down a certain communication or design issue. Those are kind of skills or intellectual approaches that are really useful to me. I'm also really interested in the cultural dimensions of the communication that happens within clinical contexts, for example. I mean, I know a lot of clinical communication is about empirical data, but it's still, it's communication among, among human beings within social and political and cultural contexts, and communication is inflected by all those things. And so that's something that really interests me. For example, I'm really interested in how gender plays a role in communication, because I did a lot of feminist analysis when I was a literary scholar and read a lot of feminist theory, and really appreciate the role that whoops, the role that gender plays in clinical communication and visual communication. So those are some of the things that I've retained from my checkered past. Then how did medicine come into the picture and science? After I finished at OCAD, I became employed at the Surgical Skills Center at Mount Sinai Hospital doing kind of administrative work. Um, and through that, I found out about the biomedical communications program I began to think, oh, maybe there's a role for illustration. I can see the role for illustration in medical education just through that kind of coming at it through the side door like that. I realized I'd spent all this time building up the arts and literature and that sort of side of life, but neglected something that is just as important and just as fascinating. And it was like this whole world that I had been kind of ignoring that I then got to, you know, I mean, I applied to the biomedical communications program. I had to do a fair bit of uh, prerequisites. (laughs) I had to go back and build up my science courses. Mm -hmm. And then when I entered the BMC program, it was like, oh, yes, now I'm home. This is a kind of complete diet here at BMC. You know, it took me a long time to realize that that division is illusory and that you need both. You need art and you need science. Mm -hmm. 
And also in recent years, I've had personal reason to be really interested in how clinical communication happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all had family members or we ourselves have been patients at some time or another, and then you become really critically aware of the importance of good communication in clinical contexts Mm -hmm. and of how difficult it can be to understand information about health and illness and physiology. But when you started the program, did you have like a feeling of what it was going to be like? And then what was it really like? It was a real eye-opener. It was an education with a capital E. It wasn't just the acquisition of skills. You know, there was a part of me that thought, oh, I want to do beautiful drawings like Leonardo da Vinci, and that's what I'm going to learn how to do. And it very quickly became clear that the field has evolved in the past 500 years. (laughs) Duh. Um, And it's so much more than making beautiful anatomical drawings. Well, then we can fast forward a bit. Sure, yeah, yeah. Let's fast forward a bit because one of the things we talked about when we first chatted was, you know, your work titled In Visualizing Sexual Differentiation, the rhetoric of uh, diagrams. And you put this idea out of reframing the concept of sexual development as more of a continuum than binary. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you can kind of unpack that a bit for us and perhaps start off by explaining what the title means rhetoric of diagrams and then we can go from there okay actually that's a good way to get back to how my thinking changed between beginning bmc and then where i was say one year into that into that program so my ideas about what biomedical communications involved expanded incredibly as soon as i was actually there learning about what people did finding out what the opportunities were And a key example was when it came to deciding what to do for a master's research project, which Mm -hmm. is the big keystone project that all the BMC graduate students do. You know, I had thought, oh, I want to work on something like about neuroscience or the brain, something really sexy, (laughs) but I hadn't really decided what. And then Darius Bagley, who is a pediatric urologist and researcher at SickKids, came to present to our program. He had a a project project. research that was going on in his lab that he wanted to have someone to make an an animation of. He described it. And then just in passing on his way out the door, he said, oh, there's also a group of people at SickKids who are working with the families of children who are born with ambiguous genitalia, and they'd like some educational material to give to those families and patients. He just sort of said this in passing. And I mean, my first thought was, you know, no, I want to do, I I want to do something sexy like neuroscience. I don't want to draw genitals for two years. And then I thought, no, this is exactly the project that I want to work on because it is such a visual challenge, because it is such a taboo subject. There are so few visualizations of the process of anomalies and sexual differentiation. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like there were so many interesting communication challenges in that project, as well as, as I realized as I started to research it, there was such a pressing need for good communication Mm -hmm. about what were then called intersex conditions. I took on that project doing a web-based patient education module for what was then called, I don't know if it still is, the Multidisciplinary Urogenital Group, I think, MUG. It was a multidisciplinary clinic for children with intersex conditions. Mm -hmm. So the rhetoric of diagrams, to go back to that title that you cited, has to do with the implicit assumptions in diagrams, for example, of sexual differentiation that begin with the indifferent genitals, as they're called, in the fetus, and then have two tracks, which, you know, you end up male or you end up female. There's that binary possibility, and then 
anything outside of that binary is pathological or is implicitly labeled as pathological. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily helpful to parents who have a child who falls outside of those binary norms. So it just really helped me think not only about how to look at images of sexual differentiation and kind of critique them, but also it's one thing to critique medical images, but then to think what's a different way to approach making those images? That's an additional challenge that I really relish, and I don't know that I've solved this problem. I was able to, in that particular instance, for that website, I was able to um, harness the power of digital media to create a kind of interactive visualization where um, it was possible for a user to actually change an image to move between uh, typical male and typical female morphology and to see the range of variation that was possible on a kind of spectrum as mm-hmm. opposed to you know those things being unrepresentable or just represented as a kind of anomalous third position mm-hmm. and what was the response like and there was a really positive response that became part of the about kids health website at sick kids and uh, was used in the clinic and for a while we were able to get there was a feedback mechanism and we got feedback from all over the world um of people saying they, that they really appreciated this depiction. That must have been very gratifying. So it was, it was incredibly gratifying. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. Okay, we'll just switch to graphic medicine. Just a couple okay. questions here, if that's okay with you. What drew you to this medium to begin with, and what do you think it offered? As with most things I've talked about, there's a long backstory. <laughs> uh, I love backstory. <laughs> so the way I first got involved with comics was it was personal. And that's another thing about graphic medicine is it acknowledges the inevitable subjectivity of communication, even in academic or clinical discourse. But it started very personally for me, just as a project, I was very close to someone with advanced young onset Parkinson's disease, who would try to describe to me what their life was like. For people without Parkinson's, it's basically impossible to understand what it's like to live in a body and mind with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like that. And so I would hear all of these very moving metaphors trying to describe what Parkinson's was like, and I would start to make drawings of Mm. these metaphors as a way to try and participate in that person's experience, try to understand what they were going through, and yeah, to have that conversation. Through doing those drawings, I learned about this, you know, larger field of graphic medicine. Um, I found out about a conference that was being held on comics and medicine in Chicago in 2011 and proposed to go down there and present my work, which I did. And it was that conference in 2011 that really changed the course of my career in a lot of ways. And all of them good, (laughs) at least as far as I know so far. So I went down there and and I met this incredible interdisciplinary group of artists, doctors, academics, nurses, anthropologists, patients, um, caregivers, who were all kind of meeting on this level playing field, this completely democratic field that was visual communication about the healthcare experience, who were all really excited about this new field and equally kind of curious Mm -hmm. and open to new ideas. And uh, I think by the time I left that conference, I had agreed to host the following year's conference here in Toronto. 
I was really fortunate. It was supported by the Faculty of Medicine. Uh, it was supported by my my program, the Biomedical Communications Program. Um, we well, had what compelled you to want to host it? I mean, I can imagine being there for the first time, and but to take it to the level where you said, you know what, I want to host this. Yeah. And not only host it two years from now or whatever. You said, I want to host the next one. Well, it was more reactive than that. I think. It was a conversation that went something like, me, I love this conference. Where's it going to be next year? Them. Well, it's just kind of ad hoc. Uh, you know, we're waiting for someone to step up and say that they're willing to host it. Me. Oh, gee, I'll do that. <laughs> me, two minutes later. What have I just done? So it was that kind of thing. It, because it is a small ad hoc conference. It depends on local hosts to come forward. Sure. Um, okay. Still today however many, seven years later, it's become more established, but it's still kind of from year to year, finds a home where, where a home is offered. And so that's how that came about. Wow. I got this picture that I pulled off from MK Zurich's <laughs> 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 okay, blog. By the way, thank you, MK, for putting all the highlights from that conference up to read. Yes. I came across this picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just to describe it a bit, and you can do it better than I am, but... <laughs> You know, this is Dr. Wall leg on the table and hands sprawled out with a smile from ear to ear. <laughs> Did I get that right? I just want to know what's going on in your mind right now. This is the end of the conference, I can imagine. Oh, yeah. What is going on? Yes. Yeah, so anyone who has hosted a conference know that you miss a lot of the conference because uh, you're off worrying about getting cream cheese for the bagels while some amazing <laughs> keynote is happening. At least when you do a conference on a very uh, shoestring budget like we did. That, I remember that moment very vividly. That was at the end of the conference, which we held in the Health Science Building, uh, just here on College Street. And we had just had a kind of roundtable at the end of the conference where we solicited feedback and mm-hmm. discussed things with participants. You know, what can we do better? What did you like? What did you not like? And I think we were all about to head out for a drink or something. And I very histrionically laid down on one of the tables in the room and <laughs> pretended to be completely well I think I don't think I was pretending I was completely wiped out but also completely exhilarated at the same time it was an amazing experience um, so that's me being delighted and <laughs> and <laughs> obliterated at the same time <laughs> that's a nice way to put it wow hey listeners it's Kat and Swapna here In this episode, Dr. Wall talks about how her efforts to visually communicate the experience of someone living with Parkinson's disease led her to the field of graphic medicine. Now, we had the chance to sit down with Tava Harrison, an award-winning writer, visual artist, and author of In Between Days, a memoir that chronicles her experience of being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. So hi, Tava, and welcome to Raw Talk. Hello. Glad to be here. We wanted to talk about your book, In Between Days. Um, on your website, it's described as a hybrid graphic memoir. What does what does that mean exactly? It's about 50% comics and about 50% personal essays. So it's a hybrid between a straight memoir and a graphic memoir. And how did the process of illustrating your entire experience and all of the hope and all the fear that comes with a cancer diagnosis actually start? It started very privately. I initially was doing the drawings simply as a way of coping, a way of finding my way out of the incredibly lost, incredibly dark place that the cancer diagnosis initially landed me into a a place where I'm able to think more pragmatically, bringing my deepest fears out into the light 
by drawing them um, took away a little bit of their boogeyman quality. Mm-hmm. And drawing them and helping communicate what I've been going through has helped create a language that my family and friends and I can use to talk about what's going on with me. And also my doctors. I've also shown the work to my primary care doctors. I used some of the drawings I brought into my psychosocial oncology appointments, my appointments with my psychiatrist. Um, I explained what I'd been drawing about sometimes in conversation with my OBGYN surgeon, with my, my medical oncologist. By articulating it, by drawing it, by putting edges on it, I've been able to take my personal experience and create something that is also available to be consumed by other people who are going through similar things, who might not have the language to talk about it or might be looking for a way to get the conversation going, which which is a pretty powerful thing. Do you remember what the first drawing that ended up in the book was? It's interesting because there's the first comic I drew about cancer, but that's not the first comic I drew that ended up in the book. The ones about childhood I drew before I started drawing about cancer. So the ones where I'm talking about having a summer snowball fight with the flowers or sleeping under the stars I drew those before I started drawing about cancer. I started initially drawing about my childhood because in my conversations with my psychiatrist, we were digging down deep trying to find the less successful ways I'd had of coping in the past. And that just brought a lot of memories to the surface. So I was drawing about these childhood memories. But the first comic I drew about cancer was the comic entitled In Between Days about making space and living in liminal spaces. It sounds like this whole process of illustrating your experience is a very intimate and personal one. So I'm wondering what made you decide to put all of this together and publish it as a book? Was it a conscious decision where you kind of decided this was something you wanted to do and then drew with that mindset? Or did you look back at the series of drawings and think, wow, this creates a really powerful narrative that can potentially be published as a memoir? Um, Neither. (laughs) I had started publishing them in The Walrus. They ran just about weekly for about a year. Mm -hmm. And the first month or so in, I got an email from my now publisher saying, I think you have the beginnings of a book here if you're interested. Let's talk. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about it and we talked about what a book might be and what that process might be considering the median survival for my cancer is only two or three years. Um, and that's about how long it usually takes to make a book. So we did a lot of, um, really gracious shifting of the norms. Mm. My publisher was incredible about making it possible for me to do this. Was it a scary moment when your book was printed and it was out there for the public to see and to, see all your deepest, darkest fears and your most vulnerable moments on the page? I think it's always a scary moment when a book goes out in the world because there's the, oh my goodness, are there typos in there? And those were the fears I was having more than, oh my goodness, somebody's going to read about sexual dysfunction in my marriage because I'd already thought about and come to terms with the idea of talking about those things. 
And it felt really important to me to include the hardest things. And the hardest things were things like sexual dysfunction, like body dysmorphia, like the, the things we're ashamed of. I had to be brave to talk about those. But I also felt like, what good does the book do if it doesn't talk about the hard stuff? Very true. Since being published, your book has gotten a huge amount of interest and acclaim. And what do you think makes this sort of visual narrative or visual storytelling so compelling? I think that we look for ourselves in images. And I think we look at an image of a person struggling and we feel empathy. I think it's easier to feel empathy with something visual. But I also feel like visual narrative provides a really easy way in. It's not necessarily time consuming. You know, my comics are generally one page long. They're not going to exhaust you. There's a way you can sort of flip through and maybe just take a little bit at a time. And I think with visual, you can find your way to that compassion more easily. And your books reached a lot of people at this point and will continue to reach a lot more people. What do you hope your readers will gain from your book? I hope different things for different people, but initially I hope that people feel less alone, especially other people living with terminal diseases, metastatic breast cancer, chronic pain, depression, anything that isolates them and makes them feel other than the rest of the population because we're not everybody has something they go through you know everybody has a challenge and the question is how do we move forward through our challenge mine being metastatic breast cancer how do we move forward in a positive way where we can still experience the world through wonder and joy and kindness and delight so thank you so much for sitting down with us again and taking the time to talk a little bit about the process and your experience with being both involved in graphic medicine, but also as a someone living with a very serious illness. Thank you so much for having me. Now back to the podcast. Well, this brings me to what you're doing right now. Mm. Is the, where the terror of the blank page comes in. This is the big project. Uh, yeah, I've actually received Shirk funding for this. It's a longer narrative about elder care and in part it is drawing from my own experience so it's partly like a memoir but I also hope to incorporate more scholarly kind of discourse around you know how elder care is represented in graphic medicine and about some of the commonalities that a lot of people of my generation have gone through with aging with elderly and infirm parents. What are you most excited about? From this terror and page. I know this is terror, but tell me some good emotions about this. Some excitement, joy that it, it will. And it's certainly bringing you as you're working on it and afterwards too. Can you share some of that? One of the things about this graphic memoir project, I'll call it, is I, I'm thrilled that I have the permission to do it. Not too long ago, this kind of project would not have been perceived as legitimate. I am completely confident that it is legitimate, but I think this kind of research... Well, I mean, Shirk has a category called research creation, which I don't know when that category was introduced into their funding model, but I believe it's relatively recent. And so I think the fact that research slash creation is a legitimate, acknowledged form of scholarly discourse... Mm -hmm 
now is incredibly exciting, not just for me because I want to do this project in graphic medicine, but I think for all of us in biomedical communications, a lot of what we do, we're creating media assets, we're creating visual communication, as well as evaluating it, theorizing it, Mm -hmm. writing about it. And so it's just so lovely to be living into a time when that kind of creative work is seen as a legitimate contribution to the academy. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, I had so much fun chatting with you, Dr. Wall. Thank you so much. It's um, been a great pleasure. Where can people find more about you? Where can they learn more about your work? And where would you like people to hit you up if they want to say hello? Uh, well, you can find me on the Biomedical Communications Program website. Mm-hmm. And there's a link there to my profile. People who want to learn more about graphic medicine can go to graphicmedicine.org. And some of the MK Serwick, some of her work on the podcast is available there. The graphic and, Medicine uh, yeah, podcast, yeah. yep. And is there any parting piece of advice or recommendation that you'd like to put out there to our listeners to take in as they're wrapping up this conversation? Oh, if you're thinking about a difficult challenge and you're stuck, try drawing a picture of it like we started <laughs> as we started with today. Get out your crayons. Oh, that's perfect. And another thing I'd like to say is no time is ever wasted. The big thing that I've discovered in my path to get here is that everything I've done, no matter how unlikely, it all has planted little seeds that sprout up when you least expect them and need them most thanks again thank you all right here's a preview of our next episode mel and swapna sit down with dr carmel tartaglia a concussion researcher and neurologist at the crumble neuroscience center's memory clinic to learn about the benefits of aerobic exercise on the brain and how she practices what she preaches And I actually am a strong advocate for exercise, for aerobic exercise. I think there's a lot of evidence out there that it's good for the brain. So I promote that and I do practice what I preach. Tune in on April 4th for the full episode. Thank you. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. I want to do something sexy like neuroscience. I don't want to draw genitals for two years. <laughs>